Good afternoon and welcome to Fissionable Faith. I'm David Messner. I'm a Unitarian minister. I'm delighted to be here today. I get to be your host. I have a few of my uh, regular uh, Fissionable friends uh, with us today, and we have a special guest. I'm going to let them each introduce themselves before we get started today. Father Michael. Hey, I'm uh, Padre Cheney. As uh, described by my colleague David here, I'm a radical priest, apparently, in the Episcopal tradition. I'm a bit of a deadhead. I'm also a bird watcher. I have my Peterson Guide to Birds with me. I'm also a filmmaker and a bit of a cinemaphile. I'm going to hand it off to you, Billy. All right. I'm uh, Billy Hester, uh, minister from the South who spent a lot of time in Metropolis um, in theater and uh, try to combine both worlds in ministry. We have birds and theatrics today. Excellent. <laughs> okay, cool. Bye bye, Hankin. I'm Rabbi Stephen Henkin. Uh, I am a Jew Jewish rabbi. A, I'm Jewish rabbi, but <laughs> um, my, my fun fact is I am one of the few. I don't drink coffee. I can't drink coffee, so I uh, I drink a lot of tea. I don't have my tea with me, but I do drink tea. Um, and uh, I've been doing. I've been reading uh, a lot of Brene Brown lately. If you have, if you've read any. Oh. Books stuff and uh really inspiring stuff too for uh, so uh been doing that and i have two mitch album books that i i need to work through over the summer that's my goal hey so the browns and episcopalian just saying well just quick i had to take a 13-hour drive my wife and i had a 13-hour drive recently and she played Brene brown with interviewing richard Rohr. they did two segments together it was brilliant wow. Yeah, fantastic. What, this isn't our topic today at all, but we, we like to do books here. So, so Steve, you first, maybe. What what have you valued from Brene Brown's work? I think What's one it? of the things that, at least one of the things that keeps resonating with me is, as clergy, there's a certain image that we always have to maintain, hmm. um, and that people expect of us as clergy people. And how do we balance that image with being authentic to who we are and opening ourselves up in ways that might not be comfortable for other people, but that we need to do to be true to who we are. Um, that's one of the things I wrestle with a lot in reading her stuff as, as a rabbi is she talks a lot about vulnerability and how do you, and being true to yourself, but you know, there's still that a little bit of that clergy image that we need to maintain as well. So trying to find that, that balance, uh, some of that is helpful. It's sort of like I was easier to think about doctors. You know, you, you don't really need your doctor to be that vulnerable, weeping at the side of the table. It's like, doctor, is it okay? Is it okay? You know what I mean? There's some mantle that it's it's helpful to, to take on and it's performative. Absolutely. Yeah. And like, you don't want that, but you, you don't want your doctor to cry with you when you're in the hospital. You might want your clergy to cry with you when you're within the hospital. Yeah. Um, so, um, but finding that, you know, being true to who you are and being the best version of yourself, but also still trying to maintain a little bit of that um, 
clergy mindset, or at least that vision of what other people expect their clergy to look like, um, and trying to find that medium in between where you still feel like you're being yourself and um, fulfilling the roles as a clergy person. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Anyone else want to get a piece of the Brene Brown discussion before? Well, my wife knew more about her and I knew more about Richard Rohr. So my wife was filling me in. She said that Renee Brown had been through something interesting that she was just so popular, very popular. But then during this highly politicized time that she kind of lost some viewers. So um, it's been interesting. She that I imagine that's part of why she's interviewing Richard Rohr, feel strongly connected to him and kind of looking at some bigger questions in life. Fascinating. I appreciate it. We did a, a minister's retreat around some of her work around shame, which I thought was really, I mean, just a helpful, a helpful construct and to think about how that operates in religious institutions, particularly, which have been sort of like shame engines in many ways. I'm sorry, Michael. No, I was going to say, I thought that was kind of the kind of crux of her work and the shame and vulnerability and being present. She had that big Ted talk, 10 years ago or so that really kind of yeah. launched her into uh, the, the, the cultural public eye. I'm working on a sermon. It's not written yet between uh, Encanto and Brene Brown. And, ah. uh, weaving those through, but, you know, stay tuned for that because it hasn't been written yet. I'm going to see you write, rewrite the words so we don't talk about Bruno <laughs> and, and sing it. Send it to us when you finish it. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm ready for the sermon, and we'll do it. We'll do a whole shame episode. That yeah. sounds that sounds a little glamorous to me. So every week we think of the episode that's coming up. So stay tuned for shame. Perhaps next week we'll do shame. <laughs> Although we have another guest next week, and I don't think it's fair to surprise a guest and to say, and today the public shame episode. I want to introduce you to my friend Freddie. Not, so anyway, we'll we'll oh, find it. Bring me back for the shame episode. I'll come back. Okay, That's a well of a special. Yeah, it has to be a, an elective thing. That's one of the maybe learnings about public shame. Is vulnerability, public. forced vulnerability is pretty intense. Go ahead, Billy. Well, I was about to say that gives you time, more time to work on your sermon there. Yeah, and we all want to we all want to read that. Yeah, no, it's right. Well, we can we can promote a sermon on the show too. We can get we can send homework here. Nothing says a podcast can't give you homework. Nothing says you're going to do it, but what the heck? Okay, so here, here is the, the episode today. The, we promised nature episode, so I, I want to start. We were talking before we got started, as we often do. Thanks for those who are in our studio audience for hanging on. And we were talking about what we wanted most of all was not to be on Zoom and to go outside, you know, get some nature. And that's the topic of our show. Let's start with uh, your, your wild roots, uh, the wild child within you. What were your, in your childhoods, what were your experiences with nature that have stayed with you or the absence of those experiences? Some of you were raised in the wild, I, I happen to know, just privately from your bios. So True. if that was you, go ahead. We were free-range children. <laughs> raised my, by wolves. Yeah, my yeah. grandparents lived on a river in South Carolina that I would spend the summer there with them. And when I was nine, I wrote, the Bluffton River is the place for me. I swim and fish beside the sea. I sail my boat in the sun and eat crabs till the day is done. And I just loved that time. On, it wasn't that brave. 
<laughs> but I still remember that and just was so fond. I had a close call on that river um, in a little sailboat with my cousin. It was a little, I was about nine and he was eight and uh, got tumped over and couldn't get it back up. It had taken on water. So that river scared me to death too. And, um, yeah, but, uh, but overall was just a, a very place of, of healing, fun and nourishment for me. After, after your boat day, did you go back to the river or was that the end of it? No, I, I stayed, stayed there. Um, yeah, I just loved it too much. You know, just I feel a part of that so much that, yeah, that one experience didn't keep me from it. Did you get braver as you got older? I mean, did that set you on the life of, of adventure? Well, I, I love the water. I got to admit, though, I, I have a great fear of sharks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and part of that is probably growing up in the era, the era of Jaws, you know, that okay. was about probably about 12 or 13 when that came out. <laughs> I think I was eight. That, I mean, we're all of a certain cohort that, that Jaws made a real impression, introduced a threat that no one had mentioned when we were going to the shore. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Well, for, for me, water, I, I just... Uh, Grew up in water, loved it, and the ocean. I, I had a moment when I got old, er, and had my first baby, toddler, and we were we we went to Hawaii. We were living overseas, and we went to Hawaii. And one, I was so afraid for my child, and two, the waves there are like five hundred feet high and incredibly rough. And I I developed a little bit of a uh, scaredy cat posture toward the sea sometime in my 30s but I'm, I'm getting back in there now I had, a, I had a really mixed uh relationship with nature growing up i grew up in mississippi on the mississippi river and there was a cow pasture caddy corner for our house and i spent my summer days or as a child with my friends running through the woods and being chased by cows and uh fishing. And then when we got hot, we'd take off our clothes and jump in the pond and spent other days on a lake growing up with my family. But I also equated the, the oppressive heat of Mississippi as something that was painful. So I had this relationship with the outside being a place of terrible oppression. Um, I, I remember that line from Biloxi Blues, you know, where, where Eugene says, man, it's hot. It's like Africa hot. Tarzan <laughs> couldn't take this kind of hot. And he's right. It wasn't until I was a grown-ass man that I went outside in other places and realized this is what summer's supposed to be like. I feel like I've been robbed. But You have to say, I, 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 we can't give away anything locationally, but I, I have met some of these gentlemen in the Deep South. I am not sitting in the Deep South at the moment. I was sitting on my porch. It was 66 degrees and dry and no little bugs flying around and i said lord what am i what was the, what was i doing i mean i went to iceland a few years ago i'm like i'm fine staying here for the rest of my life you know if it's like 70 degrees year round i'm cool with that it doesn't really stay that way year round in iceland but you get the point you know but i also grew up hunting and fishing and i still hunt and fish and i understand that's problematic for some people but i you know i like to do it and i think that that grounds me with nature it grounds me with the earth and the ecosystem that we're all kind of a part of so i think simultaneously while i 
I did equate being outside with oppression. I also really appreciated what it offered in terms of wildlife and uh, the fecundity of fa flora and fauna. You have air conditioning as a kid, Michael? I did, yeah. Okay. You know, but you know, it was still 80 degrees in the house with air conditioning, but you know. But that's a big deal. I talked to a lot of my folks, you know, who, you know, grew up in an era of like no air conditioning. Do you have air conditioning, Billy, when you were a kid? Yeah, it started. I know our car, first car didn't have it. I know that. And yeah, uh, yeah, it had, the, had the window units, I think, you know. I just remember, I don't know why it was so hot when I was a kid, because now I'm growing up, I turn it on, I keep it at 60 degrees. Uh, and so, but as a kid, you're like, right, like it's air conditioning, but it's like 84 degrees. I don't know what that was about. But I'm sorry. When I was 20, when I was 20, I moved to Los Angeles and I'm out zipping around on some August day going, this is that sunny California weather I've heard so much about. This is glorious. This is beautiful. How come all the people aren't, aren't out and about enjoying this? And I turn on the news and Los Angeles is experiencing the worst heat wave in over a hundred years. <laughs> I thought it was glorious weather. Well, trained in Mississippi. You're ready for anything. Yeah, you're right. Steve, how about you? Tell me wild one. Well, I grew up in a suburbia, so uh, Chicago suburbia. So, you know, you get suburban nature, squirrels, birds, um, not super exciting. Um, but uh, I found it like as I've gotten older, you know, when I was a kid, I was like, oh, city life. City life is what I like, what I'm used to, what I like. And as I've gotten older, I'm like, I really need that time away from city life. Even, even in small town city life, I need time away to go into nature for a little bit. Um, and uh, forests, great. Mountains, wonderful. Lakes, perfect. Like, I need that. Um, didn't have a lot growing up. I used to go wandering around. We had like a big field behind some of our houses that was kind of, I think it was like unowned property that like all the houses just kind of shared. You know, we used to, I used to go hang out there. We used to play football and baseball there. but. Um, you know, uh, I was a city kid um, for for most, at least growing up. Uh, we went fishing once, uh, Lake Michigan. I got really seasick. Was not big on fishing or boats for a long time, but I, I've kind kind of gotten used to it again. So, so I'm a suburban kid too, and one in the era suburbs, maybe at least in my mind, like the suburbs were always half built. There was a lot of like adjacent land that's a very familiar thing to me too there were like woods and unbuilt places and, and and things like that and and since now suburbia seems thickly built to me i don't know if that sort of disappeared the second thing i've thought a lot about in my life is is suburbia is this approximation of the city and the approximation of the country and i totally get why i've spent my life in suburbia and how it satisfies neither urge you know i can't walk down the street to a coffee shop and i can't walk into the woods and be alone and yet i'm here suspended in the middle in civilization so. what say you on suburbia folks as you've gotten older and you have a choice are you migrating more toward the center of cities or toward the toward the wilds that's a tough one. I mean, I live in the center of a city these days and I, and I have for most of my adult life. And I don't know, I'm still, I, I, I like what a lot of the kind of new urbanism provides and offers. And I wouldn't mind a 
parcel of land in isolation somewhere out in the sticks either. I think the pandemic has really, uh, you know, we've been shut up in our houses for so long and everything that there's a real aching to get out and be in nature. And I've, I've got a confession to make um, as a minister. Um, I've kind of, um, over the years, I never really thought about this before, started to have a resentment towards nature because over the years I would have people, you know, trying to build a church, have a com faith community. You'd hear people say, you know, I worship, you know, at the beach. I like to go to the mountains. That's where I experience God and the occurrence. How can I grow? You know, and, you, and we were in competition with nature. I just tell now, people, I say the mountains are crap. <laughs> <laughs> I like trees. Trees, they're nothing. <laughs> They're nothing. Yeah, I mean, when people say that, I've always say that. It's like, are, do you want me to come out? Like, <laughs> like I like I'm them too. I mean, I'm how do you compete David with here. that? You know, how do you compete with that? You know, because picturing course, David is like a Jerry Seinfeld going like, trees, what's so great about that? <laughs> what's so great about that? I don't get it. <laughs> you ever have a tree fall on you? <laughs> No, but yeah, but I mean, I understand standing in, in, in sand at the beach and looking out over the endless ocean and experiencing the awesomeness of God. I love that. I feel that. But but I also think that's been used as an excuse of not being part of the faith community. Mm -hmm. you know? Absolutely. And it most often comes up to me when they're talking about the, the one hour in my tradition that we we set aside for corporate worship each like that hour i need to be paddling the headwaters of the uh, on that hour <laughs> i see you you're at the coffee shop i don't think you're <laughs> so uh, yeah i i mean it's a little bit I, i'm going to ask you a question in a minute which gets to the the theological but again uh, you know it's it can't be a competition it's yes that and i mean yeah, you know, I yeah. That and how do we do? Yeah. yeah. I, I think I was just thinking when Billy was saying that, because I've had people who have said the same thing, like, why do I need to come to synagogue? I can go to the beach and experience God. I'm like, well, yes, but the nature God is not a commanding God. You know, you, nature is great and it's a wonderful place to be at peace and to feel God present and all that, not objecting. But nature doesn't really have a morality to it. So, you know, the God of nature is wonderful. The God of nature is, is important. But, you know, how does the God of nature help us lead better lives and understand, you know, how we're supposed to deal with a pandemic and a war in Ukraine and, um, you know, Supreme Court decisions? Like, how, what does the God of nature have to say about any of that? Let me let me let me back in. Let me take that as the segue into my question, which was turning to the theological or the religious. Is nature enough? Would nature be enough? You know, if you had been raised as part of Cheney's wolf family, is there <laughs> enough? Is there enough there if Romulus and Remus are looking at you and they give you like wolf ethics or whatever? But uh, is there enough in nature that you can put build up everything you need to know? 
in order to lead like a fully faithful life. And when we say God of nature versus God of scripture versus, you know, God in the temple, all these are, is it, is that not one? And isn't there enough, you know, religion based on nature alone? Well, I, th I think that goes back to the kind of both and, right? I, I read a book in seminary that, that really affected me. It was about a, it was written by an echo theologian named Sally McVeigh, and she talked about the body of God and the body of God as being all of creation of which we are a part as well. And there's something about, again, not bifurcating God, but saying God is something larger than our scope of understanding that encompasses or encompasses everything that we are a part of. God is the vast vacuum of outer space and, and moon dust and stardust and uh, the, the water and the earth and the air around us. And, and we are part of that as well. So I, I think there's something that is so deeply incarnate about God in the world and in nature that is incarnate as divine in us as well. That sort of idea, that sort of panentheism, Mm -hmm. uh, and is a, yes exactly is a kind of is a kind of radical theological no I, I, McFaig is wonderful and, and also intersecting with the fact that we're destroying God's body uh, exactly important to understand but all, uh, is that not radical and in some ways at odds with for instance traditional Episcopal theology absolutely not uh, and I think we can go back to Thomas Aquinas in the way that he synthesized the natural world and Western philosophy or St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, I mean, there's a, there's a long tradition of acknowledging the role of nature as God's body. I mean, I'm a Christian and my Christian faith is one that is based on incarnational theology. That idea that God has become incarnate as one of us, that God has become incarnate in flesh and blood to be among and a part, and a part of uh, all that has been created. And that's a solidarity that really resonates with me. So yeah, me I, I, I me think too. that it's as easy as looking at a sunset over a mountain and finding God, and also looking in the face of your neighbor and finding God there as well. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's an interesting question though. I won't chase it, whether the mountain is part of God's body and whether your right hand is part of God's body or it's a kind of ensoulment, incarnational theology, which is a little bit different than a panentheist kind of totality of God, you know, within, within. There are other voices here. I'm sorry, I mean, chase, chase it. I think that's, that's really helpful. You know, I, I think of the Jesus saying those two great commandments, and he like he couldn't separate them. And I think of that first commandment of loving God as nature, but the other has to go along with it that it's all about community. You know that it's not just about being isolated. And uh, so, yeah. So, it's, so to me, it's a, certainly a both and situation. Can I be faithful and alone if I retreat to my? Tar paper Unabomber cabin. Uh, no, not that. that there, there's been nice. more than a few ascetics who believe that you could. Yeah, no, there's a whole truth, right? There's a whole tradition in that. And and thought, think about that a lot in COVID. And I, you know, I am the drum major for gather up people, you know, like you need, we believe, I often give this talk, you know, we believe that there's an inherently social, in the best sense of that word, quality that we need each other for a faithful life, something like a Pauline sense of the body. That we come together, you know, and that's part of it, you know.
Well, I, I think sometimes we, we've got to have that isolated time just for like healing and nurturing so that we can then do the, the other. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, the length of time um, is all to the individual and to their specific need and purpose, I think. Steve, did you have something you want? I saw you. Uh, I was kind of thinking like, uh going along with the both and is that you know looking at the first five books looking at the torah god appears there's two kind of big versions there. there's the creation god in genesis and there's the re revelation god in exodus mm. and i kind of feel like it, mm. if god was the creator god and just wanted us to enjoy nature then exodus would be meaningless mm. right we wouldn't really need it mm. um and if and for the for that matter if creation and nature if god wasn't in creation and nature we wouldn't need that we wouldn't need that whole story either but that you know there's different methods and different ways that god appears and reveals god's self in this world because it's not meant to be one way it's meant to be that yes god is found in creation and god is found in nature and god and that's an important way an avenue and we shouldn't forget that but God is also found in learning and in scripture and in study and in the way we interact with each other and in society. And we shouldn't forget that either. Um, so that was my first thought. I think the second thought going to your, uh, you know, remote cabin in the woods question is that we, we talked about Brene Brown at the beginning. One of the things she says is the two biggest human needs are connection and belonging. This idea that we have this, there is something we connect to with another person and that we feel like we belong to something greater than ourselves. So, you know, a, having that cabin in the wood, I think, as Billy said, is great for, for healing. It's great for kind of grounding yourself and recentering yourself and taking some self care, but it can't be your only method either. Yeah. Because I think ultimately we need that connection and belonging to be mm. fully us. And this isn't a very radical or novel insight to say that the opportunities for, for that real sense of belonging shrink as our, our like the like the consumer opportunities grow, the opportunities for like stable, durable belonging uh, con have contracted, contracted, contracted. So when people talk about you know like the the faith communities are are over and won't be coming back and all of these sorts of things post COVID, I you know I don't see much that can can do that when they work. When they suck, it doesn't work. I mean, you, you don't, but, but when the magic happens and you feel like you belong to a place and it's not going anywhere, huh, I mean, by not going anywhere, I mean like five generations, like how about 50 generations? That's, there's nothing like that. I think it's extraordinary. Tom Hanks had to have Wilson, right? You, you know, Tom Hanks was getting all the nature he could get, but he had to have true, Wilson. Uh, in the original stage production, you played Wilson? <laughs> I, I was just remembering Broadway your bio. What, what was the name of that? Was it called Cat? What was the name of that? Castaway. 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 I love that. My wife mocks me, but I just, she could not tolerate him with the top into the bottom. I love it. I have a lot of uh, desert island, like that life. I just love it. It's one of the things on the, the, the Southeast, the coastal islands, get it with, with, lots of good deserted islands down there. So great opportunities just to get out there and have an island and talk to whatever you want, you know. <laughs>
Tell me something this in, in your own, in your work, in your ministry, how do you work with people who are increasingly alienated from nature? And I had in mind, um, particularly during COVID, you know, it was really pointed out that the one measure of relative privilege was how much access you had to nature because you couldn't be in shared indoor spaces. And so if you had captive outdoor space, I mean, that's the luxury. That was the dimension of luxury, but your own backyard or something like that. But so, but for many, uh, a natural way of life in the city is, is alienation from nature. How do the practices of your religious community get people uh, in touch with the, the, the God of nature? How and do so you mean that grandiose? I mean, you might take people picnicking. And, and Michael, I know you, you pastor to some people who don't leave nature. In some ways, go ahead. No, I. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I immediately start thinking about liturgics because you know I'm liturgical, and and I love how particularly like the Eucharistic liturgy appeals to all of our senses. There's certainly sight and there's sound. I mean, you know, we have an altar and we have music and we have uh, chants and prayers, but but then there's also I love incense. I love the way that that stimulates our olfactory senses i i and then we have um you know taste uh in 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 the eucharist um and there's 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 a sense of touching when we pass the peace with one another so i think that that really kind of gets us in touch with all of our five senses to kind of um stimulate those senses into you know being more of a part of or more aware of what that liturgy is leading us towards does that make any sense? I know it's not quite nature, but inside, it's... if like, I, and those are so important. My own tradition is sort of low church, so as they say, sort of smells and bells. People look, but I love it because some of it is is are the signifiers. But I think about them as signifiers of knowing I'm in the temple and not in nature in a way. But I was just thinking about like whether incense is a is a reference. I mean, to the wildfire or something else. Right. I don't know. We one of the proudest things uh, at my church that I'm proud for them, and I didn't start it. They started, but was a green team. And once in a while, they'll get together and invite the whole congregation to go. Um, recently, they did it three about three weeks ago where they cleaned up a river. Um, together, you know, picking up trash and all of that. And they were in canoes and all of that stuff. Um, and also our sister campus that we were merging with has a, a garden and that they're, they're working on that now and that's doing real well. So uh, we have a real nature conscious congregation, which I, I love, but I gotta be honest with you, um, I probably haven't done enough to promote how, um, how we can benefit uh, with worship and nature, probably because of what I talked about before, this sense of competition and not wanting to push that too much. <laughs> you might enjoy it too much, but I think I do need to have some do have some growing up in that area and need to, because uh, it truly can help us. And I've always been um, drawn like to uh, liturgy and uh, stories I've heard about Iona and places like that where it just really just seems to come to life, where you have those thin moments where heaven and earth seems to come together. 
working out. Yeah, boy, thin places, thin moments. I love that. We have a we have something called creation care in the Episcopal Church, and it's a covenant that we um, invite people into a commitment to, to practice what's called loving formation and uh, advocation for taking care of our environment. And some of that makes its way into our liturgical uh, practices in terms of when we, we talk about, you know, bread and wine that the good earth, good earth has provided uh, and human hands have prepared. We, we incorporate, there's even a prayer about the, you know, the vast cosmos and inter interstellar space and this earth, our island home. I, I love that kind of language that reminds us of of nature and that we're but part of it and and not isolated from it and we are we're the stewards we are not the consumers often struck in my tradition which is very pluralistic diverse you know theologically that if i want something to be the sort of great unifier then uh, religious naturalism or ecological spirituality as a kind of uniting center is always for the win, you, you, you know what I mean? And also I think for the ground of doing, you know, interfaith work, it's a kind of language and context in which we can do things with incredible freedom and engaging, including the, the, the so-called spiritual, but not religious, all those people who are in fact kayaking instead of showing up uh, in the church. It seems unless like it interferes with free market capitalism. Uh, you know, we, there, we, I was at another church that uh, we were looking at participating with Interfaith Power and Light, which is a faith-based organization that gives you an audit of your church and your facilities to say, well, this is what you can do to reduce waste and to neutralize your carbon <laughs> footprint. And, you know, you're going to get pushback from people to say, well, I don't know, it sounds like it's competing with, you know, capitalism or that it's competing with uh, industry or that it just sounds a little too socialist uh and and you know when you have people that deny that the climate is changing or that we have any impact on that then like, like that stands to reason that it sounds like a waste of time let me ask i skittered over Sally mcfaigh and and the sort of climate climate justice and and climate sorrow dimension of that, how much time do you all spend uh, preaching and teaching on climate change and climate disaster? Seven point eight percent. Excellent. I'm kidding. I have no idea. <laughs> no, I mean, I just wonder if that's like a one of the central themes of of church life. Uh, sure, but there's so much going on. You know, it's kind of like it's hard to put. You know, our kind of environmental stewardship and our respect for nature into every sermon sometimes you kind of come right back around to it and you kind of allude to it or you try to work it in in a corner somewhere i think my answer to that question is going to be not enough of my preaching time is probably devoted to that in part i think due to some of the things that michael kind of pointed out is that you know there we there's still i still have congregants who if i were to preach on climate change or climate justice are going to say yeah, but that's ridiculous. That's a hoax. That's fake. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with the world. There's, there, these are just natural changes and um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it's kind of like, well, <laughs> um, 
I think, and, uh, and why and why are you bringing up political parties and doing that? You know, because yes. they jump. It's a that it's a party thing instead of correct. A human thing. Well, we got to yeah. go back to how and why that was politicized, and that was politicized on purpose. Well, that's what we were we were talking in the pre-show. We were talking about uh, reproductive uh, rights and reproductive justice issues, and each of these issues has a political history as ways, you know, so-called wedge issues and ways to organize, separate, and and generate energy of, of one kind or another, oppositional energy. In this case, so I'm trying to think: is there any issue that hasn't been politicized that wasn't politicized on purpose as a way to? <laughs> yeah, no, not if it matters. If it, if there's juice in it, right? It matters. The direction of toilet paper on the roll is of great theological importance. <laughs> no, that's still safe to preach. You can do that. That's good. That's good. Comedy. I got to produce the diagrams from the patent to, to to illustrate my point. That's why I wonder. Some things like I asked about the environmental question whether it's run a life cycle such that it's become, uh, I, I don't know, the issue has become sort of like reified or like concretized in such a way that it's a, it's a political thing now. Like you said, Billy, it's, it's no longer ground for a kind of theological reckoning, but instead just veering into the excessively familiar political territory. So it ceases to, the church ceases to have uh, freedom of movement in that space. It's my concern. Yeah. Yeah. So let me ask this question. I'm going to close this out, but I'd like I'd like from each of you one phrase in Latin that would sum up. No, can I do Hebrew instead? I was going to say one phrase in Hebrew, Greek, or Latin, depending on your tradition. Does I understand? Count. I understand. Stephen is a is a Jewish rabbi. I was just checking his bio, and I realized we got a Jewish, which is awesome. That last guy we got, like I was like, why not? Southern Baptist rabbi. Anyway, no, I'm, so, I'm being silly. My question was not that at all. My question was this, like, if you were going to give an assignment, a spiritual assignment until next week to engage nature, what might you give? And I could, you can even be so absurd to us to assign a good book about nature <laughs> instead of going into nature. You're allowed to do anything in this sort of sphere that you might do for a member of your congregation. Take a walk and leave your phone at home. Ooh, okay. Somebody else have a church I want to attend? Okay, next. No, that's great. <laughs> Very nice. I didn't say a long walk, but you know, it's just sometimes taking a walk and being present. I'm very captivated by uh, river memories here. So I'm gonna assign Creek waiting. Get your old sneakers and roll up your jeans and go creek waiting on a hike. It's like, I never jump in the creek anymore. I used to always do that. So I'll do that. I'll take my dog out this weekend. Billy? I'll take a little different approach. I'll say find some nature within your home. I realize some people are still not at the place or maybe they're homebound. Um, to, to start there to really search for that experience of God with something that represents, that is nature or represents nature in your home. Nice. I, I, I wove into my sermon this Sunday that there are mice in the parsonage basement. So I have a little 
sense of what you're talking about. <laughs> I think I shocked people. Anyway, <laughs> Steve? I have a Jewish joke about that, but I'll save that for another time. Oh, um, gosh. But there's a, if we're going really far out, a uh, really uh, wild assignment, I think it would be really fascinating to get a group of people together and go out into nature and actually really study the story of creation mm. while sitting in That's nature. Wow. And whether it's, you know, whether you want to dive into the commentaries, I think would probably be great. Whether you just want to kind of discuss it, just the, you know, the first two uh, chapters of Genesis, but really sit in nature and experience what is going on in the story, I think would be a, would be a fun assignment. Mm, that's great. I can, I can sell that like a return to the garden and we'll all meet out there. That would be wonderful. Right. You know, the, this is totally counter to Padre Taney's suggestedly phones at home. One thing I, I do sometimes with my family is we'll do photo safaris and I can't, I can't turn the camera, but we have, I, I produced a wall of, our, we all shot uh, fungi, you know? So I have mushrooms, uh, an installation of art of mushrooms on my wall here from my wife. That's another episode too, apparently. Yeah, yeah, no, that's <laughs> So on that note, my friends, it's a delight to be together. I thank you. And uh, everyone's moving around on my screen. It's very disorienting. And Stephen, thank you so much for being with us today. Happy to do it. Anytime. Yeah. I, love, I love hanging out. We look out forward to having you back. Yeah. We look forward to having you back here. I look, I look forward, forward to, to seeing everyone next week. Same time, same channel. Great. Peace, Peace everybody. Thanks for having me, y'all. Thank you for being so, Peaceful and be wild. <laughs>